Welcome back to our series on the prophets of the Second Temple period. In today's year, we're going to be discussing the first six chapters in the book of Ezra. As we mentioned in our introductory year, we're going to try and show during our series that the main job of the prophets is going to tell the people what can happen, not necessarily what will happen, but what the potential of their time period is, and how to show them that God is talking to them through historical events and how they're supposed to respond. To support that point, I want to quote from something which we say every Monday and Thursday in the Tachnun section of Davening before we take out the Sefer Torah. In that lengthy Tachnun, we quote towards the beginning from the book of Daniel in Peretet. I'm going to simply read the first part of the quote to make sure it rings a bell. In Peretet in Daniel, Pasuk Tedvav, V'ata Hashem Elokeinu, Asher Tzetet Amcha Meretz Mitzrayim Biyad Chazakal, V'tascha Hashem Kayom Hazeh, Chatanu Roshanu. We admit to God we've sinned, we've been evil even though you're the God, our God, who took us out of Egypt with an outstretched hand. Then Daniel asked God that he should take away his anger from the city of Yerushalayim. And now Daniel asked, Daniel asked that God listen to his prayers. He should shine his face to his temple in Yerushalayim, for God's sake. As we continue in the Siddur, Daniel continues in his tefillah, asking for God to listen to the prayers and help them rebuild the city of Yerushalayim that at that time was in ruins. But if you look at the beginning of chapter 9 in Daniel, and try to appreciate when Daniel delivers his prayer, it begins right before the decree of Cyrus. There we read, This prayer of Daniel was given in the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, the Mede. This is not Ahasuerus of Megillat Esther. Rather, this is a Median king who defeated the Babylonians, the Kasdim, right before Karsh came to power. This is exactly the time when Yirmiyot's prophecy about Babylonian sovereignty of 70 years comes true. This is the king who defeated the Babylonians and immediately afterwards Karsh took over. Ashur Humlach HaMachut Kasdim. He was the king who took over the Kasdim. Bishnat Echad Lamochol, in the first year of his reign, Anid Daniel binoti basfarim. In Pasik Bet, in Paraket of Daniel, we're told that Daniel started to look into the books. Mispan Hashanim Asher Hayel Dvar Hashem Egim Yaw Navi Lemlot Chlorchovot Yushlam Shivim Shana. When that event took place and Daniel saw that the Babylonians had indeed been defeated, this inspired Daniel to pray to God in the hope that now the next step of redemption will take place. As you recall from our last year, Yirmiyot doesn't say that automatically they're going to return after 70 years, but rather after 70 years the Babylonians will fall. That will give Amisra an opportunity to return, but only if they pray to him. If you recall chapter 29 in Yirmiyot, there he stated, if you pray to me, I'll be there for you. If you search me with all your heart, with all your soul, I'll be there and answer your prayers and then I'll bring you back. Daniel's prayer is simply a fulfillment of Yirmiyot's guidance. I'm pointing this out because this can help us appreciate the meaning of our prayers when we say Tachnun. Daniel notices that a redemption process has begun. However, Daniel realizes that it requires prayer and dedication for the next step to take place. God indeed answers Daniel in a very cryptic manner. In fact, Daniel himself has trouble understanding it. That's a topic for a more detailed study of the book of Daniel. I simply want to point out that the Navi takes Yirmiyot seriously and realizes that if Yirmiyot's prediction of Babylonian sovereignty for 70 years as a punishment from Israel's bad behavior is finally over. Daniel sees this event as a call to the people to return to God in the hope that this will be the first step towards the rebuilding of Yushalayim. Does that mean Yushalayim will be rebuilt the next day? For sure not. 
But it means now there's an opportunity for the people to return. And that's exactly what happens the next year when the book of Ezra begins with the rise of Korosh to power, Korosh's famous decree allowing the Jews to return to build the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. And indeed, many of the people take the call of their prophets, return to the land, and attempt to build the Beit HaMikdash. Chapter 1 of the book of Ezra talks about who the leaders are at the time. It's Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Yehuda, appointed to lead them. And hopefully he'll become the king one day. But recall, they don't have sovereignty at this time. They're only given permission to build a religious center in Yerushalayim, to build a house for God, but they're not given sovereignty. And therefore, their leaders only called a pecha, a governor. But the people running the show will remain the Persians. We also hear about Yeshua, the Kohen Gadol. The temple isn't built yet, but hopefully he'll be the Kohen who's in charge of the temple service as soon as it is built. We also hear about a leader named Shesh Batsar. And we also see that in addition to those who actually made Aliyah, the people around them, who stayed in the cities in the Persian Empire and didn't return to Yerushalayim, they sent gifts and donations to make that Aliyah more successful. We also see in Sukim Zayn and Chet, in verses 7 and 8, how Korosh took out the vessels of the Beit HaMikdash that Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile with him after destroying the temple. He gave them back to Sheshmatzar to bring them back to Yerushalayim to use them in the reconstruction of the temple. In Perak Bet, we get a whole list of the people who actually answered that call and made Aliyah. And then in Paragimel, we find out about what happens when they actually arrive. In the seventh month of that year when they arrive, they gathered together in Yerushalayim, led by Yeshua, who is hopefully going to be the Kohen Gadol and Zerubbabel, their political leader. They build an altar. They build a Mizbeach for God. They build it on the Temple Mount. And even though they're able to build a Mizbeach, an altar, which takes maybe a couple of days, they still haven't built the Temple because that's going to take a much more complicated effort. So Rosh Hashanah time, the first year, they're able to build an altar and bring korbanot. And from here, Chazal learned that it's permitted to bring korbanot, it's permitted to bring sacrifices on an altar, even though the Beit HaMikdash is not built yet. And then in the second year upon the return, they indeed have a groundbreaking ceremony. They get some of the building materials ready. Everything is set to go. And at the end of chapter 3, we hear about these very mixed emotions where the elderly people who had actually seen the first temple, are crying because they see that this building attempt is nothing compared to the grandeur of the first temple, while the younger people are crying in joy because now their hopes and aspirations are finally coming true. They've returned to Yerushalayim and they're actually beginning construction of the Beit HaMikdash. But that joy doesn't last very long. As you read in the beginning of chapter 4, that the local population approached the Ravel and asked to join in the building. The Jewish leaders obviously did not want these non-Jews to be involved in this process at all. A fight breaks out. And then we read in Pasek Dalet, Because of that, the local population, the land, the ones who were brought there by the Babylonians during the time of Israel's exile, they weakened the hands of the people of Yehuda, and they were scaring them from building. They hired lobbyists trying to convince the Persian authorities that the Jews should not be trusted. Details of those letters we're going to see later on in chapter 4 and 5. When did all these efforts take place to stop the building? We're told in Pasuk Paras. This hiatus in the building took place from the time of Koresh until the reign of Daryavesh. In other words, the Jews return in the first and second year of Koresh. They build a Mizbeach. They make efforts and break ground on the temple itself. But they don't get the temple off the ground because the local population doesn't allow them. The local population is able to convince the Persian authorities not to allow the Jews to continue building. It's going to take about two decades until a new Persian king comes into power, Daryavish, better known as Darius the Great. And in the second year of the reign of Daryavish, he's going to allow them to attempt once again to build the house for God. 
The remainder of chapter 4 and 5 in chapter 6 in Ezra, which is written already in Aramaic, discusses the letters that were going back and forth between the local population and the Persian authorities and the response of the Jewish people to those accusations. The letters were saying not to trust the Jews. They're going to rebel if you let them build their temple. The Jews are saying they'll be loyal. And finally, when Daryavesh comes into power, the Jews indeed receive the right to build their Beit HaMikdash. What's very interesting is that in the book of Ezra, we're not told how many years transpire between Koresh and Daryavesh. Later we'll calculate that gap. It's about 18 years from the time they arrive until they actually begin construction in the second year of Daryavesh. Finally, towards the end of chapter 6, we find that the temple was completed on the 3rd of Adar in the 6th year of Daryavesh. They make a dedication ceremony. They make a big Passover that year. And that takes us to the end of chapter 6. Now imagine you were one of the people who answered the call in the time of Koresh, left your neighborhood, your jobs, your homes, your friends, and you actually answered that call to make Aliyah. You left wherever you were living in the Persian Empire and you moved to Yerushalayim with the hope that this was the beginning of redemption and you were going to rebuild the temple and rebuild the Jewish people in their land. You were inspired by the prophecies, not only of Yermiel and Yechezkel, but also the Nvot Nechama of Yishayel. How would you feel after all your efforts seemed to be wasted because the temple is never built? Recall the local population gives them a hard time. Everyone was so excited about, we're finally going to be able to rebuild the temple. This is the event we've been waiting for. And everything falls apart. In the meantime, Cyrus the Great himself dies. Someone else takes over, a different king. And construction on the temple stops. You have the feeling that maybe this wasn't redemption. And imagine that the construction not only stopped for a year or two or three, but 20 years, nothing happens. That's exactly what's happening when the book of Haggai begins. In the second year of Dayavish, there's a new Persian king, Darius, later who's going to become Darius the Great. In the second year of his reign, the Navi Haggai delivers a beautiful sermon to the people, telling them not to be in despair, but rather encouraging them to take the next move to get the temple built. Haggai's opening line is in response to what the people were saying. The people were saying, Lo bet Hashem The people were saying, this is not the time for God's house to be built, because what are they doing? They're reading the historical events as well. If this was indeed redemption, things should be going well. God should be helping them. The fact that the temple is not getting off the ground, Safati hasn't returned, their economic situation is disastrous, and the people have basically reached the conclusion that this entire Aliyah was a big mistake. One could even suggest that the people are interpreting God's message through these events. And they're saying, God's telling us He doesn't want us to build. How is God speaking to us in this way? The fact that we haven't returned to sovereignty, the fact that our economy is bad, is a sign from God He doesn't want us back. Haggai now comes in his opening chapter and tells the people they're reading the events the wrong way. It's exactly the opposite. The reason why their economy is so bad and the reason why they haven't returned to sovereignty because they haven't taken a strong enough effort to rebuild Yerushalayim and the Beit HaMikdash. And therefore he rebukes them and tells them in Pasuk Dalet, Is this a time for you to sit comfortably in your paneled homes and God's house is still destroyed? Go up the mountain, start cutting down trees, get the building materials ready, build a house for God, and God will be there for you. And then he brings an example from their agriculture. He says, look at your agricultural produce over the last several years. Nothing's growing. The reason why things are so bad is because you're not making a strong enough effort to rebuild God's house. With that background, Haggai inspires the people to take the next step and to make a much stronger effort now to build a house for God. His first prophecy was delivered on Rosh Chodesh Elul in the second year of Dayavesh. His next prophecy is given on the last day of Sukkot, which is recorded in Perak Bet in the second chapter of the book of Haggai. And there he tells the people, Pasagimel, 
מי בכם הנשאר אשר ראה את הבית הזה בכבודו הראשון, if any of you old timers is still around and remember what the first base of Mikdash looked like with all its glory, ומה אתם רואים אותו עתה, הלא כמוהו כאין ביניכם, now what do you see in front of you? It's like nothing. It's clear to Haggai and to the people that what they're trying to build now are nothing like what was built in the first temple, and therefore they need inspiration in what's called chizuk, ואתה חזק זובבל ומשם, Haggai is telling זובבל to be strong, Everyone's been given chizuk. And get to work. I'm with you. Don't interpret the events that God is not with you. God indeed is with you. And now he's waiting for you to take the next step. Then he promises them, in Pasachet, This next house, the second house for God, who can be even greater than the first, in this place there can be peace and things can go well. As we explained before, Haggai is not saying this will happen, but this can happen. As opposed to the possibility of what the people are saying, that it can't happen. The people reach the conclusion, this is not redemption, and nothing will come out of this return. Haggai is telling the people, this can be redemption, but you have to take the next step. And indeed, two months later, and not coincidentally, on the 24th of Kislev, the Arab Hanukkah, they're finally ready to lay the first bricks of the second temple. As they're ready to break ground, in the middle of the winter, Haggai gives his famous nevoah, on Erev Hanukkah of that year. There in Pasek Tedvav, he tells them, Pay attention to this day. Pay attention to this day from the day before they start putting stone on top of stone. Look what happened beforehand. Beforehand, almost nothing was growing. Now pay attention. In Pasek Yudchet, Pay attention from this day on. From the 24th day of the 9th month of Kislev, from the day that they began construction on this palace for God, pay attention to this day. Up until now, nothing has grown. None of the produce from last year was successful. From this day on, meaning next year's crops, will be blessed and you'll notice by next year how your economy is going to improve because of your actions in returning to God. Then in Pasachaf, in verse 20, Haggai gives one last prophecy on that very same day. This one is directed to Zorbavel, the governor of Yehuda. He tells him there's going to be this big political earthquake that's going to take place. Big armies are going to fall. Mighty empires are going to crumble. And on that day, God says, I'm going to take Zorbavel, my servant. He'll be my signature because I've chosen him. What Haggai seems to be alluding to, that after all these events, sovereignty will finally return to Zorbavel in the house of David. And once again, Jewish sovereignty will return to Yehuda. And Am Yisrael will be on the proper road of redemption. Very well may be that there's a connection between the date that was chosen to dedicate the second Beit HaMikdash and the time of the Hashbonaim and the Snevuah of Haggai because the first people to actually fulfill the Snevuah of return to sovereignty and return to prosperity were the Hashbonaim themselves. There was a potential for that to happen in the time of Haggai. It was not fulfilled because again, Haggai didn't say this will happen. This can happen. It very well may be that they saw in their success and God's hands in their deliverance, a fulfillment of what Haggai had mentioned several hundred years earlier. To summarize Haggai, Haggai makes two very basic promises to the people. Haggai promises them that if you take a more serious effort towards building the Beit HaMikdash, your economy will improve and your sovereignty will return, specifically because they had no sovereignty and their economy was so poor, the people thought God was not with them and they were not supposed to continue building. Haggai tells him exactly the opposite. Make a stronger effort to return to God and build his Beit HaMikdash and God will help you with your sovereignty and your prosperity. Haggai has a colleague named Zechariah. 
he also begins his prophecy in the second year of Dayabesh, a month or so after Haggai. But his main message is the people have to return and do proper tshuva. In Pasikimu, he tells the people of Amarta Lehem, Komar Hashem Tzvot, Shuvay Lainu Hashem Tzvot, Vashuvay Lechem. You return to me, and I'll return to you. Don't be like your forefathers who didn't listen to me. If you continue in their ways, I won't be with you. But if you do follow me properly, I'll be with you and help you rebuild your temple. Zechariah then continues with many visions which represent the manner through which God is going to return to Yerushalayim. But as we're going to see now, Zechariah is going to put all these visions on all this hope of God returning, not only built on God's mercy, but also on the people's desire and willingness to be an active partner in that return. One of the biggest problems that the commentators have when they try to explain Zechariah is that we know that the Shekhinah did not return in the Second Temple period. So how could it be that Zechariah's Nevo did not come true? Rabbi Yudah Levi, in his famous work called the Kuzari, discusses that question in the second Mamar, section Chav Gimel and Chav Dalet, and there he explains that there was a potential for God to return in the Second Temple period. Zechariah wasn't lying. It's not that his prophecy didn't come true. His prophecy was simply stating this is the potential that you have, but the potential had to be actualized by the people's deeds and actions. And there he explains what went wrong why the people weren't ready to return to God in the manner that he required. Therefore, we continue and say the potential that Tzariah was talking about remains eternally. It can happen one day, but if it'll happen, we'll always be dependent on our behavior as well. To show that inside, we're going to read several psukim from a nevoah that Tzariah gives two years later when he's faced with a very famous question, should the people continue fasting on Tisha B'av now that the second temple is being rebuilt? As you recall, the Jewish people instituted four fast days after the first temple was destroyed, the 10th of Tevet, the 17th of Tammuz, the 9th of Av, and what we call Tzum Gedalia, the 3rd of Tishrei. Those fast days were instituted because of events that took place at the time of the destruction of the first temple. The Jewish nation in exile in Bavel had been keeping these fast days for some 70 years. And now in the second year of Dayavish, the construction of the temple had begun and news of that construction already made it to Bavel, the communities in Bavel sent a delegation to Yerushalayim in the fourth year of Dayavesh, about a year or two later, asking the famous question, Do we continue to cry in the fifth month? In other words, do we continue to fast on Tisha B'av now that the Beit HaMikdash is being rebuilt? God's answer to this question forms one of the most beautiful sections in Zechariah, something which obviously has a message and meaning for all generations. Chapter 7 in Zechariah begins by describing this question that was brought by this delegation in the fourth year of Dayavesh. And the first answer that God gives is, why are you asking me about fasting? That was not a decision by God to fast. That was a decision by the people to fast. God says, you're the people fasting, you decide. However, in case you're asking God what He wants you to do, Zechariah begins his answer in Pasuk Zayin. Perak Zayin, Pasuk Zayin, chapter 7, verse 7 in Zechariah. Halot advarim asher kara Hashem biyad hanavim harishonim. What does God want you to do? If you want to fast, that's up to you. But if you want to know what God wants you to do, simply the same words that God called upon His people through the Nevim during the first temple period, referring to Yirmiyahu and Yechazkel, and most likely also to Yishayahu, the same message that these prophets gave when Yushayim was still built and living quietly, and they were forewarned, if they don't improve their behavior, destruction might come. The message that people need to hear in the beginning of the Second Temple is the same message that the people already heard when things were going well in the First Temple period. In case the people forgot what were the messages of Yirmiyahu and Yishayahu, 
he reminds him in Pasachet, Vaidavar Hashem Azharia Lemor. Kom Rashem Tvot Lemor. Mishpat Emet Shvotu. Vechesed Brachamim Asui Shetachiv. And the people should act with kindness and mercy to one another. They should not oppress widow, the orphan, and the stranger, or the poor person. You shouldn't oppress anyone. But these are the people that are very easy to oppress. And bad thoughts about your fellow man, don't think in your hearts. What happened? These were the warnings that the prophets gave before the first temple was destroyed. In the first temple period, they did not listen. They put up a cold shoulder to the words of the Naveen. Therefore, Zechariah continues, that's what brought the destruction on that generation. That's why they were sent into exile, as he explains in Pasuk Yedalad. And now in Perachet, Zechariah continues and says, just like I went out of my way to punish the people when they left me, now I'm going out of my way to bring my Shekhinah back. But notice in Perachet, how Zechariah is going to explain that this return of the Shekhinah will be a function of their deeds. For example, in Pasuk Yemu, Kol Hashem, I'm returning to Zion. My Shekhinah is going to return to Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim will be called the city of truth. God can promise that His Shekhinah will return. But God can't promise that Yerushalayim will be called a city of truth. Only the people can make Yerushalayim a city of truth. What Tzachari is saying, if you make Yerushalayim a city of truth, then God's Shekhinah can come back and dwell there. He also mentions, as Haggai did before, about how bad their economic situation is and how things will get better. Then in Pasuk Yedalad and Tetvav, he explains once again that just like I went out of my way to punish your forefathers when they upset me, and now I'm returning and going out of my way to redeem you. Listen to Pasuk Tetvav. Now I'm plotting and planning and working through historical events to return you to my land and to be good to you, God's saying. However, here it's crystal clear that this redemption is a two-way street. Zechariah is going to explain now what is it that the people need to do in order for God to return. Pasuk Tetzayin, verse 16 in chapter 8, These are the things that people need to do. They must speak with truth one to another. They have to judge with truth and peace and justice in their gates. And people should not think evil thoughts about their fellow man and plot against them. They should also not swear falsely. These are the things that God despises. God hates this type of behavior. It's rather obvious that one of the main points Hari is making, he's putting a very heavy focus on the mitzvot, which are called Be'daram l'chavero, on the mitzvot between man and his fellow man. For sure, there's also a call to return to God, to build his temple, to bring korbanot and to pray. But at the same time, a need to return to create a just society, one that will represent God properly. Anyone familiar with Yeshayel in Yermiel, it's quite clear that Zechariah echoes those very same messages. Zechariah concludes with this famous line, Zechariah says that the fast days indeed may become holidays. You were asking the question, do we continue to fast on the fast days? Zechariah says, indeed, one day the fast days may actually become holidays, but on one condition, if you love doing truth and living in peace, then there's no need to fast anymore. The purpose of the fast, according to Zechariah, is not to remember what happened, but why it happened. If you continue to make the same mistakes that caused the first korban, you still need to fast to remember how you need to fix your behavior. If you've 
created a just society and you're no longer repeating those mistakes of the first temple period, then there won't be a need to fast in the second temple period. So to summarize, we took a quick look at Chagai and Zechariah, whose main prophecies are given during the second and fourth year of Dayavesh, which coincided with the beginning of the rebuilding of the second temple, which was finished in the sixth year of Dayavesh. And here again we see that the job of the Navi is not to tell the people what will happen, but rather what can happen, and how redemption needs to be a two-way street. God is giving them the opportunity. He's playing with international events. He's inspiring international leaders to help the Jewish people out to give them the opportunity to build. But he's not saying that this is going to be redemption. He's telling the people this can be, inspiring them at the same time, tact in a way that will make redemption successful. After reading these sections, I think it's quite clear why Chazal chose to canonize the vote of Chagai and Zechariah in the book of Ezra. Because even though the beginning of the second temple period was quite a failure, these devote were not fulfilled, their message remains eternal, especially in our own time period. And once again, we have a political entity in the land of Israel, even a sovereign state. How successful this redemption process will be is not something that's written in the stars, it's something that can happen, but its ultimate success is primarily a function of how the Jewish people rise to that challenge and the type of nation that they build and the land that God is giving them. In our next show, we're going to continue to the next time period, which is Aliyat Ezra, which takes place in the seventh parak of Ezra. Till then, if you have a chance, try to read from chapter 7 to the end of the book of Ezra and maybe even the beginning of the book of Nehemiah.